Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Now, I don't mean to alarm you and there is no easy way to say this, but uh, 007 is dead. Don't run to your panic stations though, because today we are talking prequels. This episode of the Vintage Podcast, we are celebrating the publication of Forever in a Day by Anthony Horowitz. It is the long-anticipated prequel to Casino Royale, the first of Ian Fleming's James Bond novels, and today we're going to be hearing an extract from the first chapter. But before we do that, I just want to take a moment to wish dear old Ian Fleming many happy returns. This week would have been his 110th birthday. 110th? Anthony Horowitz is the only author to have woven his stories with the same timeline as Ian Fleming. His first 007 novel, Trigger Mortis, which was published in 2015, follows on from Bond's run-in with Goldfinger. Towards the beginning of Forever in a Day, British secret agent 007 is found floating in the waters of Marseille, killed by an unknown hand. It is time for a new agent to step up. The novel follows Bond as he earns his licence to kill, and it really cleverly explores the origin story of Fleming's iconic character. It's classic Bond, featuring appearances from familiar faces such as M and Miss Moneypenny. And fun fact, it also includes some previously unpublished material by the original James Bond author and creator, Ian Fleming. Now, that is enough of me standing between you and this extract. I can tell you're getting angsty. And I've heard that you agents are not to be crossed. So without further ado, here is the first chapter from Forever in a Day by Anthony Horowitz. Chapter 1. Killing by Numbers. So, 007 is dead. Yes, sir. I'm afraid so. M took a last fleeting look at the photographs that lay scattered across his desk and that had been sent to him by General Andre Anatonin, his counterpart at the SDECE, or the Service de Documentation Extérieure et de Contre-Espionnage in Paris. They'd been taken from different angles but showed the same bleak image. A dead man lying face down in dark, glistening water, his hands stretched out limply above his head, as if in one last futile attempt at surrender. The flashbulbs from the cameras had reflected back, producing balls of brilliant light that seemed to float on the surface. Eventually, the police had pulled him out and laid him on the quayside so that closer pictures could be taken of his face, his hands, the three holes in the breast of his jacket where the bullets had penetrated. He had dressed expensively, M remembered him sitting in this very office only a month ago, wearing the suit that had been made for him by the tailor he liked to visit just off Savile Row. The suit had kept its shape, M reflected. It was the man who was lying there, dripping, wet and lifeless, who had lost his. I was sure it's him, Chief of Staff. The evidence seemed inescapable, but M asked the question anyway. The camera can lie. In his world, it often did. I'm afraid so, sir. He was carrying no identity papers, no surprises there, and he didn't have his gun. But the French have bolinographed his fingerprints, and there's no doubt. It's 007, all right. Hmm. And this was taken in Marseille? Yes, sir. The basin of La Joliette. Bill Tanner was closer to M than anyone in the building, although the distance between them was incalculable. They had never eaten together, never inquired about each other's private lives. M despised small talk anyway, but it would not have occurred to either of them to discuss anything but current operations and the general work at hand. Even so, Tanner, previously a colonel in the sappers until he'd been sucked into the less formalised world of the Secret Intelligence Service, 
knew exactly what would be going on in the head of the older man. The death of an active agent was to be regretted, and 007 had been effective on more than one occasion. More important was to find out what had happened and to take immediate, quite probable, permanent countermeasures. It wasn't just a question of revenge. The service had to demonstrate that killing one of its operatives was nothing less than an act of war. He had actually been with them in this very room when the idea of a 00 section had first been mooted, the cipher being as blank and anonymous as possible. It was literally nothing and nothing again. And yet it meant everything to the elite group of men who were going to carry it, and who would at once be promoted to the front line of the country's war against its many enemies. Tanner still remembered the reaction of Sir Charles Massinger, permanent secretary to the Ministry of Defence, when the proposal had first been put to him. His lip had curled in evident distaste. Are you serious? What you're suggesting here is tantamount to a license to kill. It was the same old-fashioned thinking that had hampered the efforts of the Special Operations Executive at the start of the war. At first, the RAF had refused even to provide planes to transport their agents, not wanting to dirty their hands with Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. And now, just five years after VE Day, how many of those same agents would be found in the corridors and offices of the tall grey building next to Regent's Park, still ungentlemanly, still, whatever the public might think, at war? Tanner had listened as M quietly explained the point, which the civil servant had missed. Although it might not appear so, hostilities had not come to an end in 1945. There were a great many people dedicating themselves to the complete destruction of Great Britain and everything it stood for. Counterintelligence agencies like Smirsch in the Soviet Union and the Special Activities Committee of the People's Liberation Army in China. Or rogue elements, including Nazis, who still refused to believe that their precious Third Reich hadn't quite made its promised thousand years. You had to fight fire with fire, which meant that there was an urgent need for men, and women for that matter, who would be prepared to kill if only in self-defence. Death was part of the job. And like it or not, there would be times when the service would have to strike first, when a state-sponsored assassination would be the only answer to a particular threat. M could not have his hands tied. He was the one making the decisions, and he had to know that he could act with impunity. The licence was as much for him as it was for the people he commanded. The double-O section had been kept deliberately small. In fact, after this recent loss, it was now down to just two men, 008 and 0011. M had always rejected the idea of there being a sequence, 001, 002, 003 and so on. Patterns in any shape or form are the enemy of counterintelligence. Tanner wondered how quickly 007 would be replaced. What exactly happened? M reached for his pipe, which rested next to the ashtray made out of a 12-inch shell base that never left his desk. We still don't have all the details, sir, Turner replied. As you know, we sent 007 to the south of France a little over three weeks ago. He was investigating the activity of the Corsican underworld in the area, or rather, the lack of activity. Someone had noticed a sharp drop in the supply of drugs coming out of Marseille, and the natural assumption was that they must be up to something else. These Corsicans are loud and unpleasant, really nothing more than modern-day gangsters with fancy names and a proclivity for violence. Joseph Renucci, John Paul Scipio, the Guarini brothers, to name just a few. Up until now, they've had none of the discipline of the Unione Siciliana or even the Unione Corsa, but that's exactly the point. This silence is worrying. If they've managed to organise themselves, that could make them a danger, not just to the immediate area, but to the whole of Europe and, inevitably, us. Yes, yes, yes. M had all the information in the cavernous filing cabinet that was his mind and didn't need it paraded in front of him now. 007 went in undercover. We gave him a new name, new passport, and an address in Nice. 
He was an academic working out of University College, writing a history of organised labour. That allowed him to ask all the right questions without raising too many eyebrows. At least that was the idea. Part of the trouble is that the police, and that includes the SDECE, are riddled with informers. We thought he'd have a better chance on his own. Hmm. Did he come up with anything? Before he was killed? Yes, sir. The chief of staff cleared his throat. It seems there was a woman involved. Hmm. There always is. M growled into the bowl of his pipe. It's not quite what you're thinking, sir. 007 mentioned her in what would turn out to be his last radio transmission. He referred to her as Madam Sixteen. Sixteen. Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Don't forget to subscribe for your weekly dose of bookish insider stories and interviews. I have been Lena Norms, and until next time. <laughs>